Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine. Let's face it, the future is now. We're living in a connected cyber society, and we need to stop ignoring it or pretending that it's not affecting us. Join us as we explore how humanity arrived at this current state of digital reality and what it means to live amongst so much technology and data. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Black Cloak provides concierge cybersecurity protection to corporate executives and high net worth individuals to protect against hacking, reputational loss, financial loss, and the impacts of a corporate data breach. Learn more at blackcloak.io. BugCrowd's award-winning platform combines actionable contextual intelligence with the skill and experience of the world's most elite hackers to help leading organizations identify and fix vulnerabilities, protect customers, and make the digitally connected world a safer place. Learn more at bugcrowd.com. Devo unlocks the full value of machine data for the world's most instrumented enterprises. The Devo Data Analytics Platform addresses the explosion in volume of machine data and the crushing demands of algorithms and automation. Learn more at devo.com. Here we are, redefining society, or at least we are trying. Uh, this is uh, my show, but uh, Sean sneaked in, and uh, no, no, actually, I invited him through the back door. <laughs> it's a glitch in my uh, in my podcast, I guess. <laughs> the algorithm uh, didn't work properly. No, no, and I think we're going to talk a lot about how algorithms are not working properly. But uh, yeah, that was a joke, uh, Sean. I'm glad that you are joining me for. For these, you'll bring the cybersecurity, privacy, and uh, and that technology side of things on this conversation. I'll bring the sociological part, and most importantly, our guest is going to bring uh, both. I mean, she brought two books with her, actually, so that's what we're going to talk about today. Meredith, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, very exciting, actually. This is a conversation that uh, sits right at the intersection of uh, technology and society. And as I said before we started, we didn't know which angle to take it from. And then we decided to go with society as as a, the primary lens to look at this. So um, you wrote two books, as far as I know. You're also a journalist and uh, you are a researcher and developing uh, software, I believe, around with artificial intelligence. Tell me if I'm wrong about that. But uh, I think uh, I think we're going to have you introduce yourself. I kind of gave a little hint, but uh, what 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 you do and why you decided to write these books. Oh, well, thanks so much. Uh, so I am a data journalism professor at New York University. I'm also the research director at the NYU Alliance for Public Interest Technology. And I have a new book out, which is called More Than a Glitch, Confronting Race, Gender, and Ability Bias in Tech. And the big idea behind the book is that uh, we tend to talk about uh, problems of racism or sexism sexism or ableism in our computational system as glitches, as things that are easily solved. Uh, 
And so what I'm arguing is that actually it's, it's more than that. It's that all of the problems of humanity are manifesting inside our computational systems. So we need to just not have blind faith in computational systems. We need to add more nuance to the way we talk about them. So where, where is that faith uh, coming from and exist and being applied <laughs> to? Where is it being applied? Because, uh, I mean, I can certainly from the outside in, we, we've, we've done a lot of conversations from the technology perspective saying that there's a lot of abstraction. Just look at our phones, for example. There's so much going on in there, and all we see is a case with a screen that we touch, right? And th there's so much going on in there. So I can envision the trust from my perspective as a consumer using a system like that. But I presume there's much more trust going on, even the ecosystem and the supply chain and the coding and the managers of the people are doing that and investors. So I don't know how, how far and wide and deep you want to go with that, but where, where does trust sit and where, where maybe is it a little lacking? Well, what I think about is I think about driving my car. And I like to just get in my car and drive and not really think about it. But when I do think about it, I think about, okay, all of the parts of the engine are working together. You got your spark plugs, you got your pistons, you got the, you know, whatever computing is, uh, is controlling whatever is happening in the car. Like I, I, I sort of know what's going on in my car, but in terms of diagnosing it when something goes wrong, I would much rather take it to the mechanic and say, okay, fix it. So when it comes to computational systems, a lot of us are like that. A lot of us kind of use our phones without thinking too hard about how it works. And we're kind of vaguely aware of what's happening inside there, but we prefer to just use it. Uh, unfortunately, um, because we are entering into a world where algorithms are increasingly being used to make decisions on our behalf. As citizens, we need to become more aware of what's happening inside computational systems so that we can protest when a decision is made that is unfair, that is, uh, that is biased, that is going against uh, certain groups of people systematically, right? Um, in the same way that, you know, in order to not get ripped off, at the car mechanic, you need to know the basics of what is happening inside the car. Now, this is really hard. I will admit that computers are difficult. Computers do math, right? They're machines for doing math. And it is not easy to understand what is going on with algorithms, with machine learning. Uh, so one of the things that I do in More Than a Glitch is I try and demystify it. I try and explain AI in plain language so that uh, people can feel more empowered around computational systems. And as usual, we go into knowledge and understanding, and that's pretty much the answer. It's almost like 42 is the answer to everything. Uh, but you said something and like, we, we just trust our, our computers. We just trust our machines, and they're not as easy as as it used to be in uh, tools before. Yeah, the hammer is broken. Is it you know, the head of it or is it the, the piece of wood or the metal? I, I can see it. Now everything is, you can't see it. I trust the mechanic, but the mechanic is gonna use 
software to diagnose the issues. There are more line of code in a car nowadays than <laughs> my computer. So we, there is a kind of feedback loop there that's like, where, where, where is that we can resolve certain things? Now, technology, great when it's by itself. Technology deciding things for us, that's a little bit different. So that's, we get the bias, we get a lot of things that we think we can trust the machine, but really we can't. So I'm understanding that your new book, it's actually focusing on this. So the problem is, and I'm gonna be very, you know, very simplistic here. It's the problem comes to society. It's not, it doesn't come from technology, so. Right, right. The problem is people. Uh, one of the things that people often say about AI is that AI is a mirror. Uh, it shows us what are the patterns that are already happening in society. And we know that there are problems of structural discrimination. Uh, we know that uh, that there's a history of haves and have-nots in America. And so uh, these kinds of patterns are reproduced in computational systems. So one of the things that I write about in the book is an investigation by the markup recently, where they looked at mortgage approval algorithms and looked at who is getting approved automatically for a mortgage and who is getting denied. Well, it turns out that nationally, loan applicants of color were 40 to 80% more likely to be denied than their white counterparts by these algorithmic systems. And you might look at that and say, oh, well, you know, it's the computer. The computer is objective. It's unbiased. Like, it must be true if the computer made that decision. And that is a kind of bias itself that I call techno-chauvinism, the idea that the computational solution is superior. Right. So if we take away the techno chauvinism and we look at what's going on with the mortgage approval algorithms, we can see that the mortgage approval algorithms are fed with data about who has gotten mortgages in the past. Right. Because this is how machine learning systems work. Uh, you take a whole bunch of data, you feed it into the computer, the computer finds the patterns and then it reproduces those patterns. It makes predictions or judgments about the future. Right? So who has gotten mortgages in the past? Well, again, history of financial discrimination in the United States, history of redlining. So the computer is reproducing the financially discriminatory patterns of the past and saying, oh, let's give more mortgages to white people. Let's deny black and brown people mortgages. And it's just reproducing this inequality. So if you didn't know that does, this is does how- it know... Sorry, Meredith, does, does, it, does it know the color of the people? Does the computer know that? Well, I mean, the computer doesn't really know anything, right? It's just a machine that does math. It's just like a dumb, you know, your phone is actually just a dumb brick. Like we tend to anthropomorphize these things. We tend to attribute agency to them, but it's just, it's a, it's a pile of poisonous rocks, right? Uh, so the, the people writing the mortgage approval algorithms also I think are not doing it with malice. 
right? I don't think that computer programmers are getting up every day and saying, I want to write code that oppresses people. I think that most computer programmers are like most of the rest of us, just going through the day, trying to do good, trying to become better people. But all of us have unconscious bias, right? We're trying to be better people, but we're not there yet. And we can't see our unconscious biases because they're unconscious, right? If we knew they were there, then you know, it would be a different story. So when you have homogeneous groups of people creating technology, as you mostly do in Silicon Valley, because Silicon Valley does not have sufficient diversity, uh, you get software that has the collective blind spots of the creators. So that's what's happening in a lot of these situations. Uh, we have developers or data scientists creating these systems who do not know about, you know, do not know enough about the history of financial discrimination in the United States. They're maybe not aware that zip code is a proxy for race. Uh, and so they're building these systems and they're saying, oh, look, the computer is making this decision. Isn't this so efficient? Uh, isn't this saving us so much money? Isn't this so fast? Well, it's not actually getting us toward a better world if we are perpetuating financial discrimination, if we are preventing people from building generational wealth through home ownership. Yeah, as we're as we're talking about this, I'm I'm picturing, I mean, we have all this data and we use it to reduce risk, reduce fraud. Uh, cut costs, uh, be more efficient and effective. Why can't we use the data to say, here, here's what we're seeing as well? Because you, you said the computer doesn't see color. Well, why not? Why, and or Well, nobody's looking at it. <laughs> so we, why can't we look at it? And I want to go, I'll, I'll leave that there, but I want to go to um, another conversation Marco and I had um, looking at there's technology to, uh, this is very pertinent, very relevant, technology looking to remove weeds from lakes and rivers and ponds. And the reason I'm bringing that up is the, the response to the initial problem of weeds in these bodies of water was chemicals. And humanity didn't think of a different way other than just throw a bunch of chemicals in the lake and, and kill everything in there <laughs> so we can get rid of the weeds. My the reason I'm bringing that up is my question is, do you think we're going to have a situation in the world of AI and algorithms where, oh my gosh, this, this thing is out of control. It's full of weeds. Let's dump a bunch of uh, AI chemicals in there to, uh, to clean up the mess that we created. Wow. Well, I am I am imagining the pond in my hometown, and I am imagining it choked with weeds, and I am also imagining the chemical spill that I know happened in the pond in my hometown, and so I am. I think you pushed. So let's. Uh... All right. So let's take a step back. Uh, one of the things that I can uh, that I can bring to this conversation as a journalist is a new field of journalism called algorithmic accountability reporting. Uh, and the idea behind algorithmic accountability reporting is that it is possible to hold algorithms accountable. So in the past, the traditional function of the media has been to hold 
decision makers accountable in an algorithmically mediated world, uh, you know, we need to interrogate algorithms and their creators. Uh, so one of the, uh, the organization I mentioned before, the markup is doing some of the most cutting edge work in algorithmic accountability reporting. And so one of the things that they're doing is they're looking at the inputs and the outputs of algorithms. Uh, they just published a story the other day um, that looks at uh, tracking and grocery store reward cards. Right? Mm. So you go to the gr grocery store. It was really good, wasn't it? Yep. Yeah, it make you feel like, no, I don't have an account with you, dear chain, wherever I buy my food. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Exactly, exactly. Uh, because, you know, you go to Publix, you buy your Cheerios, like you don't, you don't think that your data is being sold. You don't think your data is being marketed. But actually, every time you're using something you think is free, like you are the product. Right? And so we need more reporting uh, on these systems. And I mean, we need more data privacy overall. We need people to understand uh, kind of the depth of what's happening in these computational systems. And we also need to understand the way that bias works inside these systems. And so bias is kind of hard to talk about. It's hard to have conversations about racism, about sexism, about ableism. These are uncomfortable topics. Uh, for many people, but we need to do, we need to start having these uncomfortable conversations so that we can build better technology so that we can have a more just world that is more inclusive. Yeah, those are all great points. And actually, I'm thinking what, what Sean started there with, which I didn't know where he was going with that, which often happened. But then it, it kind of clicked something in my head because it's like, can we use data to fix data? But then if we do that, are we just poisoning the whole thing? And then we depend even more on data. I think that's what I got from what you said, Sean. And, and from what you said, Meredith, it's, it's the point that it goes back to how we are as humans. And we always go back to that. So you mentioned something, and, and I discussed this before, the concept of others. And, and I would like for you maybe to elaborate a little bit on that into... You know, I'm, I'm assuming the idea is that in technologies, and while we do recognize this diversity and we put it into the system, the system is going to use it to consider people others and not all equal. So I know I'm going maybe a little philosophical here, but I'd like for you to kind of like um, explain this a little bit more. Well, I think for me, uh, this is about the importance of diversity in the development process and the software development process. Uh, one of the examples that I like to use is the example of the racist soap dispenser. Uh, I don't know if you saw this viral video, it's uh, you know, a couple of years old now, but uh, two men, uh, one with light skin, one with dark skin, walk into a bathroom and try and use the soap dispenser. And the man with light skin puts his hand under the soap dispenser and the soap comes out. Man with dark skin puts his hand under the soap dispenser and no soap comes out. And then you might think, all right, the soap dispenser just broke at that instant because you know, things break, okay. But no, the man with dark skin gets a white paper towel, puts it under the soap dispenser and the soap comes out. Right? So the soap dispenser is racist. Now, I don't believe 
that this was intentional. I don't believe that the soap dispenser makers were like, yes, we think that only people with a light skin should be able to use our soap dispenser. Like that's, a, that's, not, that's not reasonable, right? But what I do think happened is that this was a team that had a very homogeneous group of people on it and they tested it on themselves and said, oh, look, look, it works for us. It must work for everybody else, right? So in that kind of situation, if you have more diversity on your development team, if you have a variety of people, a variety of voices in the room, then you have people who can speak up. And of course, you need to empower people on your team to speak up uh, when, uh, when they see an issue. You know, you can't, uh, you can't you know, make people feel silenced. Um, but just the simple fact of diversity can really help. I'm going to make a comment here because I'm thinking there is a middle way, a middle, you know, a middle position here between technology is going to resolve technology and and we need to do it with society. Now, what I'm thinking is, you know, let's, let's touch on the word of the of uh, of the day, uh, generative artificial intelligence, and you know, the writing and the chat and the dally and so on. So we do something, and then we create someone else. I think MIT, I believe, uh, created something that says, well, let's analyze, and we'll see if it was done by artificial intelligence. So I'm thinking, like, why not create, and um, for what I know, somebody's working on it right now, a system of, that uses the data just to say, I'm pointing out that, the data here is doing a really bad job about diversity and inclusion. So almost like not the solution, but the tool that we need to improve the way that we that we operate and actually optimize technology. What, what do you think about, about mm -hmm. that? No, I think that that is, uh, I think that the future, uh, the very near future will uh, we'll see an explosion of tools for algorithmic auditing. Uh, so there is, uh, there is, I mean, algorithmic auditing exists as a phenomenon. So it is kind of a, it's related to algorithmic accountability reporting. And the idea with algorithmic auditing is you look at the inputs and the outputs of a system and you evaluate whether uh, it is, uh, being biased, or you evaluate how it is being biased, and uh, you apply a judgment about that bias. Um, there are some really terrific researchers doing uh, doing work around this. Uh, Deb Raji is one of them. Kathy O'Neill, the author of Weapons of Math Destruction, is another one. Um, I've worked a little bit with Kathy's firm Orca on doing algorithmic auditing. And so you can do algorithmic auditing from the inside or from the outside. As journalists, we often do it from the outside, but if you work inside a company uh, and you have concerns about, okay, is my say hiring algorithm, uh, you know, excluding uh, people of color from the resumes that are being considered, you can, go into the software and you can actually run these tests yourself. Uh, the world of algorithmic auditing uh, is very close to the world of compliance. I think that in uh, heavily regulated industries like uh, financial services, I think that's where we're going to see the, 
the first requirements come through around uh, compliance and algorithmic auditing. Now, I realize that saying auditing and compliance has like made a bunch of people's brains turn off, and I apologize for that. Oh no, you you turned Sean on, so I know he's going for it. So <laughs> yeah. music to my ears. Fabulous, fabulous. Okay, well, well, uh, we could definitely nerd out about this a lot, but suffice it to say that uh, we know there are problems inside these systems. I. Uh, People have mostly pretended they're not there because it's so uncomfortable to to confront it, but we do need to confront it. And we are starting to have tools for confronting kinds of pernicious bias inside computational systems. So I'll, I'll, I'll start my, uh, my rant here with just the commonalities of auditing and compliance and regulations and, and all that connected to privacy, connected to cybersecurity. Uh, for many years, those were hammers to get people to do what uh, people thought they should be doing anyway. And the big companies can, the smaller ones uh, get mired in, in all the process and everything else that, that, that they have to do just to prove that they're doing some, something a certain way. And the innovation kind of gets lost or they, they focus on the innovation and deal with the fines later, <laughs> if that's what they choose. Um, so what this makes me think of, though, is another area where there's another driver for doing what's right. So it's not, well, there's always the, the first driver is money, right? And the company, the, the, the hand uh, soap dispenser, they missed out on the money because they only uh, were only serving a certain group of people, right? And the others weren't going to Buy that, uh, that buy that product. Then you have the uh, the auditing compliance and, and the hammer that comes with that. The third way is that there's a belief in what you're doing for the better of humanity, the better of society. And to me, that's kind of wrapped up in the ESG movement, environment, social governance uh, movement. So I don't know from from your experience as a journalist and and talking to folks, have you seen much? of that broader ESG movement um, diving into the ethical AI and, and non less bias, I won't say non bias, but less biased uh, algorithms? Well, I think that we have had a very, very long period of uh, tech companies policing themselves. Uh, we've had a very long period of tech companies saying, oh yeah, we'll, uh, we'll take care of it. We'll, uh, we'll do voluntary, uh, you know, voluntary compliance with the public good. Uh, and what that has led to is it has led to our current situation where we have, you know, mortgage approval algorithms that, uh, that deny people of color more often than they deny white people. We have things like facial recognition used in policing. Uh, so this week, there were, uh, the week of uh, March, uh, what was it? It was March 1st, I believe. There was a new article in Wired about uh, a case where somebody, again, had been arrested wrongly because of a facial recognition match. Right? It's only people with darker skin who seem to be getting 
misidentified by facial recognition systems. And we know that NIST, uh, the National Institute of Standard and Technology, uh, has audited facial recognition systems and found that they are less accurate for people with darker skin as opposed to people with lighter skin. They are more accurate for men than for women, and they work worst of all for women with darker skin. They work best of all for men with light skin, right? So we have cases of actual harm that people are experiencing at the hands of automated systems, or we have uh, you know, systems that are supposed to detect welfare fraud, right? But what they're actually doing is denying people access to public benefits. So we really need to kind of take a step back and look at our systems and look at what are the inevitable problems, right? Like what are the problems of discrimination that exist in the world? We need to ask ourselves, how could these problems possibly be reflected inside computational systems? And then uh, we can start to do something about it. So Hopefully using some of the tools that I talk about in More Than a Glitch. Yeah, and I, I want to start wrapping this conversation because on one side, I'm I'm like let's let's limit possibly uh, what we can do or what we should do with artificial intelligence. Uh, ideally, not. I mean, if we believe in utopia or dystopia, we have a different approach to things. But until we can fix society, and I'm going to be a little dystopian here, which take cultural changes, and I want to be optimistic. People are working on it, most of them, and definitely I agree with you. There are good intentions in people that are developing all, this, all these things. But until then, is, uh, is limiting the use of this, um, on your opinion, the, the answer, even if it's a temporary solution? Well, I, I do not believe that we should stop using technology. Right, like I'm not one of these people who thinks that we have gone too far down a dangerous track. Like, you will you will pry my smartphone out of my cold dead hands. Right, um, I think that it's about using the right tool for the task. Sometimes the right tool for the task is a computer. Sometimes it's something simple like a book in the hands of a child sitting on its parent's lap. You know, one is not inherently better than the other. Uh, I think we need to. Uh, to build technological systems. I think we need to make our tech systems better, but I also think that we need to pull back sometimes and we need to stop using technologies that are demonstrably harming people, right? So like facial recognition and policing, for example, bad idea because these systems are disproportionately weaponized against communities of color and it's just exacerbating a, a problem that is that is already huge, right? And so it creates these dangerous feedback loops uh, that are not getting us toward a better world. And it's that loop that I'm picturing in my mind um, because I, as you're describing a couple of scenarios, I could easily think like the audience and say, eh, I'm not gonna ask. I don't have to worry about fake, facial neck recognition and being uh, arrested. I'm not in any place that I'm doing anything wrong. That that scenario doesn't doesn't apply to me. Now maybe that case that somebody wasn't in the right wasn't in the place doing something wrong that the facial recognition recognition found them anyway and, and mis uh, 
misidentified them. But my point is, I think as a society, we're, we're a bit numb to certainly cybersecurity and, and privacy. I have nothing to lose privacy-wise, so who cares, right? And until, until we can resonate with a particular scenario on a broad scale and have a voice on a broad scale to say, that's not right, um, don't do that, <laughs> right? And, and I don't know if the government steps in before the society does on those, on those types of deals, but uh, to your point, I think that loop needs to be snapped and something has to, something has to happen before, uh, before the loop circles in on itself in, into the center of, of an explosion. But I don't know if it, if it's some bad event or, or if we're going to have some other, some other activity or, or some other trend surface that, uh, it makes that loop break. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Well, I think that one of the ways we understand the world is through stories. Uh, and so one of the things I've tried to do in, in More Than a Glitch is I've tried to collect uh, stories that have resonated for me, stories that have helped me understand uh, the kind of scale of the problems with our algorithmic systems. And I've tried to present them, I've kind of piled up together, but also organized into different categories. So I'm looking at policing and, uh, and the justice system. I'm looking at medicine, uh, at kind of bias in medicine in uh, the cutting edge of AI-based cancer detection. Uh, I'm looking at education. Uh, and what I hope people will take away from the book is a sense of what's going on uh, inside these tech systems, you know, kind of how the systems work, which of course is explained, as I said before, uh, but also what are the implications for ordinary people's ordinary lives? Because it's very easy to think, oh yeah, like the, the algorithms are not coming for my job, but the algorithms are definitely coming for your job. Right? <laughs> like none of us are safe. Yeah, I think that the moral of what you said and the moral of what Sean said, it's, uh, yeah, it's nobody worries about it until it actually touches you and then, or it gets very close. And I think we should be smarter than that as a, as a humanity. But if we look at history, I don't know if I'm going to be so optimistic about it, but I think we are awakening. Um, at a, at a faster pace than what we've done in the past. Uh, bottom line here is that you're right. We Limit need your use of these technologies, Marco. That's yeah. the bottom line. Yeah. <laughs> well, we need stories, though. I agree with you. I mean, I, I, I always welcome people like you journalists that do raise the questions, the right books. Hopefully people will read the book. That's what we do. We have podcasts. We talk to smart people uh, about about these things. And as we always say, if even one person that listens to this comes out of this with more questions and, and, and start learning more about this topic, you know, we're, we're doing our job. Uh, one person at a time, we, we could do something positive. So thank you so much for this. I want to invite everybody to uh, check out your book, uh, More Than a Glitch, Confronting Race, Gender, and Ability Bias in Tech, and also your other book, which uh, had a pretty interesting um, title, How Computers Misunderstands the World. And I, I think they're very well connected. So um, you know, uh, an interesting read if you if you are into this. Meredith, thank you so much. 
Thank you so much, both of you, for a great conversation. Thank you. And everybody else, thank you, Sean, and people listening. There'll be notes uh, and links to the book and uh, Meredith and uh, everything for watching this video if you're listening to the audio or listening to the audio if you're watching the video and uh, stay tuned for another Redefining Society podcast on IPSP Magazine. Thank you very much. Devo unlocks the full value of machine data for the world's most instrumented enterprises. The Devo Data Analytics Platform addresses the explosion in volume of machine data and the crushing demands of algorithms and automation. Learn more at devo.com. BugCrowd's award-winning platform combines actionable contextual intelligence with the skill and experience of the world's most elite hackers to help leading organizations identify and fix vulnerabilities, protect customers, and make the digitally connected world a safer place. Learn more at bugcrowd.com. Black Cloak provides concierge cybersecurity protection to corporate executives and high net worth individuals to protect against hacking, reputational loss, financial loss, and the impacts of a corporate data breach. Learn more at blackcloak.io. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share itspmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.